Welcome to Forging Plowshares. We hope you enjoy this conversation and are challenged by it. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. The Girardian read, I don't know, do you have a, do you have a term in what you call your read? The, the Axtonian read? <laughs> I don't know. But don't know. they're very complimentary. There's, you know, I don't see a, any contradiction or conflict at all. I don't either. Something I've been reflecting on, and it's, um, it, it, to me, it's like a, well, I think, do you use the term deep grammar, I think, a few times? Yeah. It just, it, it actually bolsters the case for understanding the cross. And funnily enough, about five years ago, I got a book written by a couple of guys. You know, I was, I was kind of into Christus Victor. I was into some of the governmental views, which was even the Yale, I mean, the old Yale uh, even some of Charles Finney and some of the, those, they they never were into penal substitution. But I just thought, ah, this is just something we're not meant to understand or make sense of. The, and then the Gerard was really helpful. But it, it doesn't depend quite enough on Scripture as what your account does. Yeah. Although it does, but it, it it's not enough. Well, the deep grammar <laughs> reference, I don't know if you're, are you familiar with Noam Chomsky? Yeah, a little bit, a little bit. So I did a degree in linguistics. I don't know that I got much out of the degree, but of course that the picture of Chomsky is that there's a universal grammar and there is a deep grammar then that all languages share. To say that we've arrived at that grammar, we wouldn't know that, but we can, positing that notion, you can always work towards a universal grammar. Right, and, and in a sense, like by deep grammar, that there, there's certain things that are in every single language group. Yes. I mean, obviously, right. With your linguistic, did you study any of the work of George Lakoff? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I've spent a lot of time on his work. Do you write Metaphors We Live Metaphors By? Metaphors We Live By, yeah, yeah. I actually wrote a book in Japan, English Through Metaphor. Oh. And I was using Lakoff's theory to, to say that well, a possible way of, of learning English would be to begin with the metaphors that structure the language. And so I posed all these, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. the key metaphors, and then under the metaphors, the metaphors generate idioms. And so like, you know, time is money would be the metaphor. Right, right. And then buy time, sell time, serve time. Yeah. You know, the way we talk about time in English, it's all under that metaphor. I just went through and did a series of those. Actually, the book was published in both Japan and Korea, but it's just an English learning text. Oh, fascinating. Yeah, and again, that's where I think getting behind, you know, even what we're learning in Romans here in the whole Paul story is when we talk about language, and, and I think the Girardians would argue that the origin of language was possibly because of violence. You know, in the beginning was the weapon, that's how it all starts. You know, the ability, again, it wasn't you or Chomsky that talks about language being a code. So now you've got the ability to have secrets because you're in conflict with someone else. Uh, throughout, I'm not presuming that it's language per se that's the problem. Or I think we can misassign this. We can do with language what we would do with the law. Is the law our problem? Right. Well, no, it's not really the law, but it's our orientation. It's our use of the law. Right, and right. I'd say the same thing, you know, by law, I just wouldn't be in, I would include language or the symbolic order. There's nothing wrong with language, but to imagine that there's life in language or life in the law, then right. uh, puts a weight upon it. And so I think sometimes people hear what I'm saying and they think I'm saying language is fallen, but language isn't fallen. People are fallen. Christ right. is uh, appears to us, he comes to us as word, and that's the common, you know, he's just going to use the common vernacular, and it's adequate then for the revelation that we have in Christ. I think tonight is the key night, Romans 7 and 8. I was thinking, obviously, the ego is the issue. It's, it has to be killed, you said in your words, it can't more for change. It can't become better. And I was just thinking about Old Testament. Time. Obviously, they had the same dilemma as we do before. They're all subjugated to death and to the orientation of the lie. I don't know how the Jewish nation would have got that healing. 
without the death and burial and resurrection. A guy on Logos, it was a Dr. Kaiser or whatever his name is, and basically he said, well, all the Jews were saved by belief or uh, believing loyalty. That's what he said. That's how they were saved. And I'm just trying to rationalize, well, obviously salvation is found in God. And so I'm just trying to comprehend how are the how are the saints in the Old Testament saved without the solution in the New Testament? Kaiser. Yeah, I th- uh, he's the the most unstartling scholar I know of on the scene. So I was just say unstartling. Yeah, I just find him. <laughs> I just I'm always amazed at people that get away with what they do, and and he's one of them. He just is so plodding and. But the question is, not, that's not dismissive of your question. The question is legitimate. And that is that when you say the word saved, you know, what do we mean by saved? And, and of course, what I think that we do not have salvation in the New Testament sense uh, apart from Christ. It doesn't mean that people are going to hell because they don't know Christ. It means, though, that the departure from the first Adam, as Paul describes it, both at Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, is not a process that's complete until the appearance of the second Adam. And so by salvation, probably what we mean that there is a a shift in what a, a human being is, that you can't be in Christ apart from, I think, the life, death, resurrection uh, of Christ from the person work of Christ. That doesn't mean that the Jews are not saved in the sense of, oh, well, they're, they're not going to heaven or they're not part of the kingdom. But I think that no one who has not been exposed to the work of Christ in the, in the special revelation that we have in the New Testament does not enter into, then, the personhood of the second Adam. That's only a possibility, as I understand it, through Christ. So I think that salvation, then, is a practical salvation. It is a a salvation that is a participation in the personal work of Christ through the church. That is certainly foreshadowed and pointed toward and understood, then, through Israel. There is no fullness of salvation in the Mosaic law or in what was delivered to, to Israel. They were being saved as a covenantal people following, the, you know, having their allegiance with Yahweh. But it wasn't as the full revelation that we have now in the New Testament in which we can identify the problem, kill the problem, and have the fullness of the Trinity with us, the Father, and Son, and Holy Spirit. They're missing out on that. Well, no, it's, and it's a good problem, and, and it's probably a challenge to me or to any of us that I'm, I'm not claiming Romans addresses or that we can necessarily buy through reading Romans, especially in the way that we're reading it. In other words, what we've said is that there is no natural light. There is no natural revelation. And even the light that's given through Israel proves inadequate and in fact is uh, distorted by the Jews. And so we're posing a more serious dilemma, but at the same time we're saying that salvation is not conditioned upon, you know, the things that we do, that it is an apocalyptic thing, salvation that's breaking into history. And in that sense, it's universal. It's all-encompassing. Paul is even saying this in chapters 9 to 11. He's describing this universal flow of salvation through Israel. He is addressing the question that you're asking, well, what about Israel? Are they not saved? And I think Paul would say, well, God forbid. Of course, you know, that they have been cast away, or in, in a sense, they're in the position of one that seems to be a pot that is uh, made for destruction. But in a sense, the movement of casting away and destruction is one that's embodied in the person of Christ. He is subject to destruction. And so what Paul says is describing is all people are brought in, even to the degree that he describes this then, that the gospel then has been preached to the ends of the earth, that all creatures have heard it. Well, in some sense, we know that's not 
true, I mean, that Paul himself is going to continue his missionary journeys. But in another sense, in Paul's you know, eschatological vision, he's picturing then this cosmic salvation as if it's already accomplished. And so there may be a kind of tension there, and I think we just kind of have to live with that tension that it is cosmic, it is for all people. But if you ask me about, you know, Joe Blow, who lives in Ethiopia, and I don't think there's any out. There is no natural light. There is no salvation. Salvation is in Christ alone. But nonetheless, I think that it is all-encompassing. So maybe we shouldn't throw this contemporary epistle and back to the Old Testament, if that makes sense. Like, we shouldn't view... Israel's predicament is the same as our predicament today. Well, I think Israel is is illustrative of the human predicament in that what is being exposed in the case of the Jews, certainly that, you know, through, through the promise given to Abraham, we know that salvation comes through the Jews. But Kaiser's misunderstanding may be to imagine, in other words, his mistake may be the Jewish mistake. And that is to imagine that being the chosen people means they're chosen for salvation. No, they're chosen not as these are God's elect and other people, they're going to heaven and everyone else is damned, but these are God's elect in that salvation will come to all people through the Jews. Christ himself is a Jew. And so the point of the Old Testament is not the saving at that particular point in time through the Mosaic law, but it is, as Paul describes it, a tutor that will take us to the one who indeed ushers in cosmic salvation, and that's Christ. I'm tracking with you, Paul. I am. I okay. really am. I'm just I'm just trying like just trying to think about Michael Kaiser's statement today and how what we're what we're learning about you know, the sin and deception and how we are going to overcome that through the spirit. Um, trying to rationalize if these two things are, uh, if they can mingle together, I guess. That would be my point is that there's no, that this understanding, it doesn't harmonize as far as I can tell. The places it doesn't harmonize are, are fairly obvious, but I think it stretches even further you know, that those who would hold to some notion of original sin, obviously it's not going to fit with that. But strangely, I think even people that may not hold to original sin still structure the problem the way in which Augustine structured the problem. And I think this is just typical, not only of clearly Calvinist theology, contractual theology, but I, I think even in, you know, like our, like Christian churches. And that is the problem. You know, I was, I was just doing 1 Corinthians 15, that Paul says a, a very interesting thing there. He says, now see if you can quote the passage. I think that I would almost tend to misquote it because of my, the way in which I've been trained in theology. The sting of dot, 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 is dot. Fill in the blank. The thing of sin is death? That is exactly wrong. Way to go, Matt. I knew that it had to be the other way. By the way, guys, I just logged in. Are you guys in a fight? <laughs> no. <laughs> we just hung up three times on each other and then dialed in again. Several I'm... people have stomped out already. <laughs> I, think that my, I think that my internet broke up because what I said was is that the sting of death is sin. <laughs> Were you doing that on, or did you say it wrong on purpose? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think that we're all trained to say the sting of sin is death. Right. That's exactly not what Paul says. Well, my sword here to make sure. The sting of death is sin. Why should that be? What's worse than death? Well, apparently sin is. Because what he's just saying, the sting of death is sin, 
or you got it there, Matt. Read the okay. Now death sting is sin in verse fifty six. Wow, and sin's power is the law. Okay, I had it underlined, so at some point I noticed it. But <laughs> the, I'm glad you misquoted it. You're always a good example. Or as I say, if you can't be a good example, you can always be a horrible warning. Yeah. <laughs> That's Homer Simpson. Paul used to say that he used to tell his theology, he used to use me as an example for his theology classes on what can happen if you do bad theology. You could turn into me. Oh, uh, there you go. That is your illustration that I picked up. Matt, point, and I think it's a good point, and it pertains particularly to this verse, is that bad theology will kill you. It, to get the notion, the, to misunderstand what the nature of eternal life is, is death-dealing. And not in some theoretical sense, but in a very literal sense, that to mis I think to misread, as we all are taught to misread, and it's not you, Matt, I think that I probably always... I think our tendency is just to misread that verse. And so the, the two explanations, where death is your victory, where death is your sting, death's sting is sin. So what is Paul saying? Well, he's talking about, well, death is just a fact. But is it a fact that we need to deal with? Are we saved from death? I hope so. Or are we primarily saved from an orientation to death that is death-dealing and makes death personal, cultural, social, constitutes religion, constitutes human subjectivity outside of Christ. Death for God, this is George MacDonald, Matt, when Jesus has the confrontation with the Sadducees, he says, you have no understanding of God, which is an odd thing to say because the argument is about the resurrection. You know, they're arguing, well, what if a man, you know, whose who's wife she going to be in the days of judgment? Jesus says, you have no understanding of God. He concludes the argument and says that God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. That's an interesting statement. And if you misunderstand they, they know God is not constrained by death, but of course the problem is that we are constrained in our understanding by death. This is Paul's picture here in 1 Corinthians. That in the first Adam, you know, that is one form of humanity, and that form of humanity, human knowledge is constrained by the absolute of death. And then the our positing of human religion is always going to deal in death. But, you know, I think I could state the understanding here if we would read, the, if we would do it according to the misreading. Okay, the sting of sin is death, and this is according to the law. I'm misreading. I hope you follow. I'm misreading. But this is the way we misread it. So this means that the primary determination in this economy is law. The sting of sin is death according to the law. And therefore, we must, by manipulation, in other words, guilt is a guilt of transgressing the law, and the payment for guilt is death pays for guilt. And so in human religion, in human psychology, in human understanding, the way that you gain life is through death. And luckily, through the death of Christ, we gain eternal life so that Jesus pays the penalty of the law, and now we're saved. I think I could stand up on a Sunday morning and preach that sermon, and no one would question it. I also think I could go to any pagan temple anywhere and preach a similar sermon, just insert different names, and they would say, amen, brother. That is pure paganism. Namaste. Yes. That is that everyone would gain life through death. But does God gain life? Does he manipulate death 
so as to establish life. Nine. God forbid, I think would be Paul's answer. And so the, the proper reading is that death is, for God, is not even a consideration. Resurrection is not dealing in death. It's just an obliteration of death as an absolute category. And apart I, from resurrection, human understanding is always then constrained and framed by an epistemology centered on an economy that is death-dealing. That is, it always deals in death. Another way to say it is that life, you know, in the form of death. We imagine we're gaining life through the law, through dot, 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 the culture, through grabbing all the gusto we can. But it's always death that's actually in circulation under the deception of being life. And so I think we are trained and we are predisposed to misread that verse. But you know that already. And so that, that would be my point, I think, with the Jews. Did the Jews understand who God is? Jesus says, you don't understand who God is because they can't. They're constrained. They're in the first Adam. Yeah. I read a, a lady after Twitter, but she was saying that if you want to supersede the Old Testament with the new, then you're an anti-Semite. Well, maybe you're just anti-human. Or maybe to imagine that life is in death and that people are defined then through an economy of death is already subhuman. And that apart from Christ, we have not achieved the full humanity for which we were created. And certainly the Jews are an instrument in that working out of salvation. This is a revelation that works and is comprehended in the context of Israel and the law. When, when uh, Jesus makes the reference then to unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, is that, is that just a metaphor that's not, it's about a different type of death altogether? You guys think Brian's on this? But he says a thing, he says, because it sounds a bit Hegelian to me, but maybe not. But he's saying that Christ, to defeat death, Christ went through death, filled death with himself. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's kind of orthodox. That's what he claims, that he's doing Eastern Orthodox, that Christ yeah. enters into death and thereby fills it with his logos, abolishes it, uh, overthrows it, de you know, dethrones it. And so that Christ, I forget the exact way that he formulates it, but it sounds a bit Hegelian. You know, he's saying that Christ goes through death, fills death with himself, comes out the other side to use the right, you know, rights phrase or whatever. I don't know. Maybe I like it. I don't know. But maybe that's the answer to your question. I had to think for a minute when you asked me. I really like Brian's on it. I, he came to Vancouver about two years ago with Brad Jersak, and it was wonderful. And I, I think I listened to a lot of his messages, and he's a very, very good preacher. But I think the thing I found is because he's mostly you're hearing his YouTube stuff that he's preaching to a congregation, it kind of only goes so far and so deep. Okay. I think, you know what I mean? That's why, like, what we're discussing is, is way more deep grammar, deep grammar. That's, the, that's my latest catchphrase. Yeah. You know, we're kind of getting behind it and that. But I think the one thing that jumped out at me when that Allison article was just the fact he was saying, was it something like God doesn't do death or God that's doesn't? That, and that's precisely what I was going to, I'm glad you said that, because he said that God has nothing to do with death. No, yeah, yeah. That's really got me thinking. I mean, I've read the essay before, but I hadn't really heard it that, is that, true? that way. Is that, but is that true? That's the key question. All right. Because in one sense, I think in, in Dr. Axton's sense, you got to say, you know, that, that God doesn't have anything to do with that. In the other sense, is someone like Brian Zahn right? You know, and again, I'm only hearing his sort of watered down, ver not watered down version, but, you know, more sort of elementary version because I don't. He certainly would. And again, when I think of that idea of God having nothing to do with death. Right off the bat, though, God doesn't kill people. He doesn't kill anybody. And that would be Brian Zahn totally. He's, he's completely nonviolent. He would be part of the nonviolent atonement, non-sacrificial read of the, of the scriptures. I mean, my understanding is, I guess I buy into the harrowing of Hades, that Christ went down into the, you know, he died. He went down into the realm of the dead. I love one of my favorite icons, which, by the way, Brian pointed this out to me, is Jesus pulling up, you know, Adam and Eve by the wrists, not even by the hand. He's, he's pulling them up by the wrists, you know, and he's got them like this, and he's sort of pulling up them, you know, and of course they stand for everybody. Paul looks like he's burning up. He's ready to give us the... <laughs> 
partly, I don't know about him. I don't know what he might be referencing. But let me tell you my journey in this. My awakening from my dogmatic slumbers was by reading Jürgen Moltmann, who is my favorite heretic. You are Hegelian. Pure Hegel. But I, I think you almost need to pass through somebody like Moltmann, get the misreading firmly in place, and understand that it is heresy. I, sometimes I think you can't appreciate the orthodoxy apart from understanding how we are implicated to such a degree in a heretical understanding. Zond is just on Moltmann. Do I have that right? I don't know enough about Brian Zond to know. But, but, but that's what I've been saying, right? That, that God passes through death and comes to a being, you know, sort of fuller than what he was before. And it's very Hegelian, I think. He's passed, he has to make the passage through, in other words. And the way that Moltmann describes it, you know, he pictures Christ dying on the cross and taking death and nothingness up into the Trinity so that now death and nothingness are contained in deity. That's terrible. <laughs> and he's your favorite theologian, you said? Because I, I don't know what, maybe it's just accident of history. When I'm saying it, I'm saying, yeah, I, what Hegel is doing and what Moltmann is doing is, first of all, historicizing what salvation and saying it's grounded in a historical event. He's wrong in the fashion that we're always wrong, and that is that we assign reality to death. We assign reality to nothingness as if it does, in fact, constrain God, because it certainly constrains us. But I think the good news of the resurrection is the empty tomb, that death is emptied out, that nothingness is not, in fact, a category. It may be a category that we create, but that's because we're subject to a deception, to a lie. And so, no, I, I would say that God, there is no need for a dialectic with death in our understanding of what God has done in Christ, but rather Christ has destroyed dialectic in the resurrection, and that in his death, in his dying, what has he done? He's shown that the category, though it has people in its grip, though they would kill God if they should meet him, and certainly it is a revelation of the degree to which death controls and is definitive of human categories. It is not definitive of God in Christ, and that's the whole point of the incarnation of Christ, is to empty that category of any power, but you can't empty a category that is already empty of any essence. You'd almost have to go with uh, the alternative, right? Like, because isn't what Zizek is saying it, with Hegel? The only really eternal fact about God is that he's dead. He died on the cross. Yeah. This, and death and, and nothingness and something, nothing and something are, are fused, mingled, co-mingled. They're fused. Yeah. 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 And, you know, I guess, Paul, I'm with you. I think I'm tracking with you. I guess I've, I've only recently been thinking of suffering as an eternal fact about God. I don't know. I don't know if I'm ready, to, but that's George MacDonald, right? George MacDonald is saying that, and this is very over and against someone like Hart and against the, you know, the kind of the fathers, you know, a lot of the fathers in the tradition, but those guys are arguing, of course, for apathia, that God doesn't suffer in his, you know, in his essence. But what MacDonald is saying is, is, yeah, he does, because everything that's true about Christ is true about the Father. If Christ suffers, it's because the Father suffers, all right? And so I guess I'm just tracking with, I guess, Paul, we have to delineate and say that God does die on the cross. I think you got to say that, right? Uh, but, oh. but that's not the end of the story. Right. I think maybe false notions of God. This is actually, I thought, was something really interesting that Michael Harden was saying, that kind of like the idol, you know, the false understanding of God dies on the cross. That if you rightly understand the cross, all false notions of, of God, both in his eminence and transcendence, die. Yeah, well, I think the idea there was because at the cross, you see a God who is weak, powerless, doesn't do anything. There's no, you know what I mean? There's nothing there. And so we have to completely rethink about what, what it is we believe to be true about God, where we've had all these, this 2,500 year history of, 
all kinds of activity, killing the firstborn of the Egyptians and all kinds of power and God is mighty and God is this and God is that. And it's like, well, surely he would have saved Jesus if he was going to do any triumphant act. A man who's done no wrong, surely he would save him. He's, you know, I, I it was really strong. Yeah. He would have saved him on the cross. But he, yeah. And I've listened to that a lot of times. And this is good. I mean, I, I, you're, you're raising more questions than you're answering. So I guess that's a good class. <laughs> let me let me throw a, a wrench in the works here. Oh. You know, there are many passages that what you know, what does God have to do with death? In a sense, it's a category that is created, not create created is the wrong word, but occurs because God withdraws life. Is that his anger? Maybe. Anger at sin, anger at the so in other words, you can still talk about this as well, in a way, yeah, God does not give life through sin. That's not that's just because of who God is. So the category is obviously one in which, you know, in Genesis the tree of life is removed, access to life and God are taken away because of the orientation of the, the human being. That's in the story, but and again, I mean this is kind of a question we kinda of had in that other conversation though, is when we look at the fact that we are biological organisms. The whole economy of, what do they call it now, the geosphere, whatever it is we live in, there's been death long before Adam and Eve, whether we ate from the garden or whether that tree, I mean, I don't think there was actually a tree. I mean, our biological death, it was all part of it from the get-go. And that's why even the whole question back in Romans where Paul talks about subject to groaning. Well, I'm asking the question, well, the fact is, is that our cosmos was created in such a way that biological life would be possible on this planet. But there's a whole bunch of other things that have to happen. People get upset about earthquakes and tsunamis, but that has to do with the with the plates underneath our earth. And with them moving, they pro provide a field around the earth so we don't get hit with space junk. So we might lose 300 of our species, 300,000 from a tsunami. But if we didn't have that earthquake going back and forth, we wouldn't have the protection in our solar system from getting hit from space junk that could take out 10 or 20 million. You know, the whole idea of death before the fall and all that, I'm very much on board with evolutionary biology. That all happened. And so our physical death isn't something that came about because of sin, because of the fall. Even in the story of Genesis, there's nothing in that story. In other words, the story, in fact, implies that apart from God's special intervention, providing life, I assume the tree of life is representative of God's presence, apart from that special intervention into the situation as it was, death is the natural outcome. And so as long as we have access to God, and this is the picture in Revelation, the tree of life is restored. I presume it's a metaphor for the presence of God being restored, that we now have, in other words, to have access to God is to have access to life. Ah, okay, okay, that's good. And when God turns his face from you in the Hebrew Scriptures, that's the worst thing that could happen to you, because that means if God forgets you, you ain't, you're undone. And so I presume that the biological or death or whatever that was, that is not for God forgetting us, that God remembers us, and that is always, that's the essence of what we are. Well, I have a question. I mean, it's a big claim that we're, that we're making, right? That I've always understood that, you know, just in basic terms, that sin brought about the fall. Sin brought about death. Mm -hmm. What we're saying is, is no, actually it's the opposite, that death brought about sin. And of course, Paul even is distinguishing in Adam and the people that are found in Adam that obviously with Adam, that his rebellion is turned away from life, the tree of life, to the knowledge of good and evil. In that instance, sin did indeed result in death. But then in both Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15, the process is reversed for everyone else, in that death is posited as the condition of all found in Adam, but not sin. But then in an orientation to death, we take death up, and what it means to take death up, I don't mean, you know, it's not like, oh, if we didn't sin, we wouldn't biologically die. But to take death up means that we become killers. 
we become psychopaths, we become neurotics, we go to war, we take up religion in which we would sacrifice. We kill, we manipulate death in order to gain life, right. and that is the human condition psychoanalytically, socially, in every sense. I guess it's just uh, to me from like kind of like a cosmic history or whatever, because if what Tim is saying is true, and I'm, I think it probably is, that, that death, and what we're saying in the class is that, that, that death generally gives rise to sin. The orientation to death gives rise to sin, right? There is something fundamental, I guess, then about being, even from the laws of thermodynamics or whatever, that things are running down, that things are dying, that entro the law of entropy, you know, et cetera. And so it really seems like it kind of solidifies the point as death being primary, not as a reality. The resurrection is the, is the prime reality, but the death brings about sin. An orientation to death brings about sin. I mean, I guess I just, however you want to read the, you know, the opening chapters of Genesis. I mean, I don't know how this whole thing got started or whatever, but it's an interesting, it's an interesting point. Well, I mean, you could even read that story in a different way than, you know, actually what, the temptation is, and whatever that creature is posing the temptation from out of the earth, the original sin then in the garden is a positing of death as if it is life. Mm -hmm. You won't die. You'll be like gods knowing good and evil. And so even there, it's the same. In a sense, it's the same move. Yes. But of course, once life is withdrawn, and that's clear in the stories, the continuing picture in Genesis and Exodus is that people get into a condition in which they do not know God, which I guess the original condition is it didn't matter who you were, you know, Adam, even Lamech, they knew God either directly because he had appeared to them or because he had appeared to their ancestors or, you know, in some way. But the interposition of the absence of God creates the situation that Paul's describing in which prime reality is presumed to be death and not life. And that then becomes the orienting factor in human subjectivity and what we do. One, one thing I was just thinking as you were saying that, and again, I haven't thought about given thought of this for a long time, but a whole other read of the Genesis story is just the idea of coming of age for every human being that grows up. So as a child, you're, you think of your innocence, your belief, your life just flows, you live in the moment, all the right things. You just generally believe in God. You just generally trust your caregiver. You know, I'm saying in a, in a hopefully in a semi-healthy, emotionally healthy home. And so then you die because you suddenly, real, you know, you, you have that orientation outside of the trust of your caregivers. You lose all your trust. You know, you could almost see that story just being talking about each one of us, not a, in a local scale, not in a global. So we all fall. We all have that fall. You know, if you just were to look at it that way. One of the things I keep coming back to in my in my studies and thinking is, is while we're focusing on particular issues in in Paul's writings and about Romans, but these are these are cosmic questions and cosmic issues. So I'm always trying to work on a grand scheme of everything. It's all connected to everything else. It's not, you can't, I can't just have my whole, all my science and my math over on the left side and it doesn't really comport or connect at all with what I'm thinking theologically. All of it's connected and, and in a good way. These questions are really good in trying to have a full orbed understanding of how, um, yeah, how it all works out. I mean, that's my reading of Romans 7. And that's Zizek's and Lacan's reading. Mm -hmm. Paul is describing every man. Right, right. And they're coming to this, having passed through Freudian psychology, they're saying, well, this is just the move of the child, the child's entry into language ah. and being enculturated. That language then, you know, think of the little story I told you last week, was it about Freud's day of babysitting? Somebody should make a movie, Freud's Day of Babysitting. <laughs> the child displaces the reality of the mother with language, with the symbolic system of the spool. Don't we all in some way then entrust ourselves to the symbolic order in that same fashion? And that's what Lacan and Zizek are saying. But they're just saying, well, we're saying that because Paul said that. And I think they're right. In other words, life is in the law for everybody. But the law is the symbolic order of language, 
I suppose that someone that does not enter into language remains innocent, or that someone in some way that does not have the cognitive capacity to so entrust themselves to language does not have the aggravation that we usually have as part of being human. Can you expand on that entrusting ourselves to language a little bit? You can carry this out in any number of ways, but I always think philosophy is the easiest way to articulate that if you go through the history of thought you know what is the history of philosophy it is an attempt to arrive at the absolute truth in and through language that the pro the point is that absolute truth is thought to reside in language in words if we say it right if we can arrive at the word this is literally plato but i think it's the history of philosophy up to the linguistic turn that you get in Ludwig Wittgenstein. Wittgenstein is saying, oh, wait a minute. That is the misnomer. In other words, he's saying language is just embodiment, and he, he's, he's bringing us back to earth. But what we would normally do with language is what the Babylites would do with it. We would storm the heavens and establish or obtain eternal truth. And I think what's being displayed in philosophy, you know, maybe best, the most ingenious is, I think, therefore I am. That sums it up. My thought, my thought then provides being. My thought, language provides being. I assume that the articulation of that is the movement of every child. That That is the, the mirror stage. You recognize yourself, and I'm not claiming to know how this in other words, there's a bit of obscurity in all this. If you go back to Genesis chapter 5, and it talks about that Adam was created in the image of God, and Seth, then, is in the image of Adam. I presume that we're all in the image of the Adam that has been passed on to us through family and culture. Well, you know, when you talked to me about Hegel the other day, I think I just Googled it, probably just my Wikipedia page, but he even talked about kind of his philosophy as rationality will save us if we can just get the right words something like that we're, we're good philosophy trumps theology right right because in philosophy we it is the the highest movement of spirit that's really good stuff it's and it's everything that you're doing in your book what's happening on a large scale with philosophy is just precisely the case that you're making is happening with the whole human project that is the human project to arrive at some absolute truth, call it the law, call it the God, call it the whatever, through the realm of the symbolic or language, but there's nothing there. A lot of your philosophers will just be honest and just say that. There, there's nothing there. I mean, Zizek will tell you, you know. That is postmodernism. Right. In other words, that's the grand truth of postmodern philosophy. They've recognized this conversation, that, that ultimately it's all grounded in nothingness. With Heidegger, he's still thinking of nothingness as something. He's reifying the nothingness. But what postmoderns recognize is, no, nothing is really nothing. This is an accord. It is a, a, a discourse. I think this is a prime moment, historically, in which we can recognize the emptiness of human thought and philosophy and recognize then how Christ is breaking into that, not with a, a you know more of the same, but a counter to all that's come before. So this word is not simply more human words. You know, that's the orientation here, is the difference between the structure. The, this is the Lacanian registers. I don't know if anybody went back and read the Freud, Lacan, and Zizek chapters, but that's what I'm doing in those chapters, is just saying that the registers that you get in Lacan trace out then the function of language as we are inscribing ourselves in the symbolic order, which is already, you understand, to find life in the law, to ground yourself in the symbolic order of language. It means that you can trace the movement. This is what Lacan is doing. He's positing these three re registers as then the structure that language takes in a lie in a deception. This is why Zizek will refer, refer to a primordial deception. He calls it the fundamental fantasy. You have to have this fundamental fantasy. And so each of the registers then are 
a part of a structure, you know, the imaginary is the ego, but it is imaginary, but it, it's a visual orientation. The language that Paul is using in chapter 7 is within the visual register. He's talking about the eye, and he talks about it through a kind of scopic capacity. The uh, symbolic order, the law. Yeah, I see a law at work within my members. Blepo, Matt, is that? Yeah, blepo, sorry. And then the symbolic order, the two registers you understand seeing, the child, when it sees itself in the mirror, it can't name what it sees apart from language. So you need the two registers to be coordinated, to be able to say, I, that's me. The scopic capacity, the ego, the imaginary, all of that's visual metaphor. But it's visual metaphor that's hooked up. And that's one register. And so Freud is describing this as a split in the ego. Freud is thinking of this as a kind of biological thing. But what Lacan is coming along and saying, let's reread Freud and everything that Freud said about biology, let's just put it in, let's just say that it's actually linguistics, it's language. So Freud is positing these two cosmic forces, Thanatos and Eros. And of course, originally it was Eros, sex, everything's about sex, you know, people accused Freud of. And Freud himself became dissatisfied because he could not account for the basic conflict the masochism, sadism, you're not going to get that in, in a single drive. And so the positing of the second drive, Thanatos, he's picturing that as he begins to think of that. You know, our discussion, think back of our discussion on death. He's just saying Thanatos is primary. And ultimately, everything returns. It is a kind of eternal return, almost in a Nietzschean sense, to death. And life, then, is just the between, between the rising out of and returning back to death. All of this is interesting because when Lacan says, let's read Freud as if it's all language, there's a sense that Freud is already predisposed to being read in that way. And this is Harold Bloom's reading of Freud. Do you know, do any of you know who Harold Bloom is? Literary critic. Yeah, he's a literary critic, but he's also, he, he's very appreciative of Freud. What he says about Freud is, Freud, because of his own orthodox Hebrew upbringing, is identifying dreams. Everything is symbolic in Freud. When Freud asks you to tell, tell him your dreams, he's really not interested in the story of the dream. What he's interested in is the things that appear and what they symbolize. And so he's seeing the symbol system as the primary factor already. So dreams, you know, humor, jokes, and the unconscious. The unconscious is structured like language, is the great discovery of modern linguistics. Language is the structuring factor in every part of ourselves. That fits with both testaments in the Bible. In other words, there is a logic, there is an order that is traceable. There is a semantics even to human desire. And this is Paul Ricoeur. He's tracing the semantics, and this is his, you know, Ricoeur's big book on Freud. That's what he's saying. And Ricoeur is just working, I, I believe, from a Christian understanding. That, and so I believe we can trace the semantics of desire. There you go. Sum it up for us, Matt. I just looked over, and it was Ricoeur's book on Freud and philosophy. I, I forgot about it. You know, in a sense, everything is death. Since, since that's the first base, I, I had a, I had a, I had a mark there. Freud was always a dualist. Uh, in a sense, everything is death, since self-preservation is the path on which each living substance pursues its own death. In another sense, everything is life, since narcissism itself is a figure of eros. So read the statement again. That's interesting. Self-preservation. In a sense, everything is death, since self-preservation is you know it's a path circular sort of path on which each living substance pursues its own death yeah uh that's that's the book there you go you don't have to buy it that's the hebraic universe but it's also the understanding that you get in adam you could also do this one right death and desire i think boothby makes it accessible 
And so death is always tied into desire. In other words, if this is semantics, we can trace it in language. Obviously, we can't trace it in our conscious understanding. But the Freudian project taken up by Lacan and Zizek is you can trace the semantics of desire in and through the unconscious. In my understanding, this is why we read the Bible, to arrive at a hermeneutic in which we pass from a death-centered interpretive frame to a resurrection frame of understanding. But in that process, now we can read human desire. We can read the world. In other words, the point of Scripture is not that we know Christ as an object, but we see the world with the mind of Christ, and his is a mind that is not controlled by mortality, by death. And so I think we can literally begin. I mean, we need to do this in our own life. We need to understand that, you know, we need to come to a fullness of understanding of who we are in Christ. And as we do that, you know, what Freud would call, you know, Freud has the phrase, where the id is, there the ego shall be. And his point was, well, through the ego, we gain control of the id. But of course, we really don't gain control of the id through the ego. And he came to realize this, that in fact, the ego is a byproduct of the id. This ego and superego, even in Freud, you know, this is why Freudian psychology is kind of thrown into a crisis by Freud himself. And so if you go and study Freud in this country, it's always ego psychology. So you're always going to study, you know, what you get in psychology is early Freud. And so what Lacan is doing is taking that moment of crisis and extending it to say that indeed the ego and the superego are a byproduct of the id, or to state it in the words of Paul, death is then the controlling factor in the law of the mind and in the life of the eye, in the law of sin and death, to sum it up. It's the real. The, the real. That's a long way of saying, that's a long way around of saying, I think, what Allison said. And that is that death and what Paul is saying. There's two, there's two kinds of human beings. There's the first Adam. Human understanding takes place in the frame of mortality so that death becomes something more than biological death. It becomes the orientation. And in the second Adam, it means something completely different to be human. Thank you for listening to this episode of Forging Plowshares. You can learn more and join our growing community by visiting forgingplowshares.org. Please consider supporting at patreon.com slash paulaxton or by donating at forgingplowshares.org slash donate.